Well, when was the last time you addressed somebody as your majesty? Have you ever used it in a way when you've actually meant it and it wasn't some sarcastic joke towards the person you said it to? Because there aren't many higher forms of address than calling somebody your majesty. There's a show that Diane and I have watched called The Crown. And it's a very dramatic series on the story of Queen Elizabeth II. And it gives you an idea of what her personal life was like. You would think that living in a castle and having a decent amount of power and having people serve you left and right, it would be kind of nice. be easy living. And yet, in reality, the show exposes the emptiness in all of that. But one of the things that I found fascinating was all the formal greetings that have to happen to the royal family. In fact, I went on the royal family's website and I found these codes of behavior for greeting a member of the royal family. The website says this, for men, this is a neck bow from the head only, while women do a small curtsy. On presentation to the queen, the correct formal address is your majesty and subsequently ma'am. For male members of the royal family, the same rules apply with the title used in the first instance being your royal highness and subsequently sir. In Psalm 8, we have David coming before the Lord and praising him for his majestic name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's almost as if David was saying to the Lord, your majesty. Psalm 8 is the first song of praise in the Psalter. If you remember, Psalm 1 and 2 are the introductory psalms. They're the doorway, the pathway into the book of Psalms. And then Psalms 3 to 7 have been filled with lament. And we get to Psalm 8, and it's filled with all of this praise. From start to finish, this psalm celebrates the majesty of God. And according to the the title of this psalm, we know that it was written by David. And then he gives some instruction to the choir master. Again, we aren't exactly sure what a giddith is. Uh, Potentially could be an instrument uh, that came from the city of Gath, but we aren't exactly sure what it means. But David directs this note to the choir master, the, the choir director. Because Psalm 8 was a worship song that the people of Israel would sing during their worship service. We don't know exactly when or why David wrote this song, but more than likely, David was outside one evening and meditating on the starry skies. And keep in mind, there was no electricity back then. So David is seeing the sky in all of its clarity. And his response is to praise the name of God. Well, this morning, I only have one point, one main point that I hope you see in the text, and it's this. We should praise the Lord's majestic name for the wonders of his creation and redemption. We should praise the Lord's majestic name for the wonders of his creation and redemption. Not sure if you remember, but last week's psalm, Psalm 7, ended with David saying this, 
I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So we ended last week with David singing praise to the Lord. And today he starts off with praise for God's name. In fact, Psalm 8 begins and ends with a shout of praise and adoration for God's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the Bible, names were more than just a way of identifying someone. A person's name revealed something about them. It revealed their character. And it's the same with God. In fact, he is so serious about his name that he commands in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, David doesn't take the name of the Lord in vain. He praises that name. And when you first read that phrase, O Lord, our Lord, it kind of sounds redundant. It's actually difficult for me to say. I actually had to rehearse it a couple of times so I wouldn't trip over it because you're repeating that word, Lord. But if you look closely, you will see that there are actually two different names for the Lord used here. Notice the first Lord is in all caps, which refers to the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the second Lord in the Hebrew is the name Adonai, which means Lord or master. It refers to God being the sovereign ruler over everything. And so what David is saying here is, O Yahweh, our Adonai. David is calling out the personal covenantal name of God, and then he's also proclaiming that he is the sovereign Lord, our sovereign Lord, our Adonai, the only God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majestic points to God's visible power and his might. And David continues, he says that you have set your glory above the heavens. David understood what modern astronomers don't, that beyond the heavens, beyond the galaxies, there is something far greater. You have set your glory above the heavens. The night sky with all the stars and all the planets is just a small Costco sample of the glory that there really is. Glory is not an attribute of God. It's actually when you put all of God's attributes together. Glory is the visible display of God's greatness. When we say, Let's glorify God. That doesn't make God more glorious. We are just acknowledging what's already there, who he is. He is glorious. And we see part of his glory when we look up at the heavens. But when unbelievers go outside and they look up at the sky, they don't speak of the majesty and glory of God, even though that is why it's there. 
It's sad to think that people can spend years studying and observing the universe and not be in awe of its creator. He has set his glory above the heavens. And then in verse 2, David writes, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. We often use this verse when a child says something profound or insightful. We look at the child and go, oh, out of the mouth of babes. And I think that there's a way we can interpret the verse that way. The fact that a four-year-old child can answer 40 questions from the Baptist catechism, or even when a child can, can sing and, and, and know the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There is strength in the fact that such a small child is saying such deep, profound truths in a simple way. And yet, I don't think that's exactly what David is getting at here. He's using babies and infants as a metaphor for the weakest of God's people. The weakest of God's people who are easy targets for his enemies. David's point is that God takes the humble, the weak, the things that are despised to showcase his majesty and glory. The God who has stretched out the heavens to display his infinite glory has chosen weak, helpless, and sinful people like you and me to silence his enemies. And what's interesting in verse 2 is that this God, whose name is majestic in all of the earth, whose glory is beyond the heavens, actually has enemies. God has foes who are described as the, the enemy and the avenger. Now, this could be talking about a human king whose armies are attacking God's people or who live in opposition to God, or it could be in reference to Satan, the enemy, the avenger. Or it can be in reference to both. We don't know. God has enemies. And the way in which he defeats his foes is through what comes out of the mouth of the weak and the vulnerable. God makes them strong and silences the voices of his enemies. God uses what is weak and small in the eyes of this world in order to advance his kingdom and bring praise to his name. Through the foolishness of what we preach, God confounds the wisdom of the world. Through the weakness of the cross, God brings his strength and power of his saving grace. Jesus used these verses during his last week on earth during the triumphal entry where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sometimes we call that Palm Sunday. We see this in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus rides in on a donkey. People are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus goes into the, the temple and he drives out the money changers who were abusing the people of God. And then he 
brings healing to the blind and the lame. And it says that the children start crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees and chief priests are livid. And they go to Jesus and we, they say, make these children stop. These children realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation. And, and the chief priests were horrified that Jesus would allow the children to say these things about him. And Jesus says to them, did you stop reading the Psalms when you got to Psalm 7? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus says, have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And then the text says that he left them. This is a word of condemnation and judgment towards the religious leaders. God's enemies were silenced. Jesus declared himself to be the Lord who establishes strength out of the mouths of little children when his enemies refused to acknowledge him as the Messiah King. How does God display his glory in our world? How does he make his name majestic? Well, God reveals his majesty by defeating his enemies through human weakness. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God makes his name majestic by using weak people like you and me. And then in verses 3 and 4, David's eyes move away from crying babies and up towards the heavens. And he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? To show us how small we are, David lifts our eyes up to the skies. When I was in high school, my parents owned a cabin in northern Wisconsin. And most of my summers, we spent all of our time up there. And one of the, the, my favorite things to do, other than fishing, was to go out on the dock late at night, lay out on the dock, look up at the sky and the stars. When you think about all there is that's out there, you feel really, really small. And that's what David is getting at here. Notice he says, when I look at your heavens, not when I look at the heavens, your heavens, the sky belongs to God because he is the one who created it. But creating the heavens was not difficult for the Lord. David describes it as the work of his fingers. The moon and the stars didn't come about by some big bang. They were carefully placed there by the almighty 
God. He hung them in their place. How awesome is it that when the moon comes out at night, the same moon that David talks about in this psalm is the moon that we see. The same moon, the same sky, but also the same moon that the unbelieving world looks at and doesn't give glory to God for. In this psalm, David is teaching us to praise God's majestic name for the wonders of his creation. And David didn't even know half of what we know now. Our planet is just the right size to sustain a livable atmosphere. The earth is the right distance from the sun, preventing us from burning up or freezing. The moon is the right size and right distance from us so that the oceans are not just stagnant or raging out of control. And not only can we look up and see the stars at night, we have high-powered telescopes that take pictures of galaxies that are 25 million light years away. All of this is the work of God's fingers. It was designed this way to testify to its maker. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When we think about all that the Lord has created, we should be humbled. It should give us a right sense of our insufficiency, our inadequacy, our weakness, our sinfulness, and our frailty. It reminds us of the fact that God does not need us. That's where David goes when he says, I look up at the night sky and consider who you are and what you've done. And my response is, what is man that you were mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What am I? Why wouldn't you just pass over me? David is astonished that God would be mindful of him because in comparison to the solar system, we're just a tiny little speck. In all of your greatness and majesty and glory, why would you notice me and care for me? This is the right response. This should be our response when we look at all that the Lord has created. Because if you think about it, we are rebellious creatures that temporarily live in just one of many galaxies in the universe. Why should God care about us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father in heaven. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is mindful of us, and he cares for us. David continues in verse 5, and then he uses creation language. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. 
Does that sound familiar to any of you? That's basically Genesis 1. The creation of man was God's pinnacle. It was the, the high point of his creation. David is reciting Genesis and he's going back and he's talking about the creation of man and his dignity and what his role on earth was supposed to be like. First off, we see that man was created by God. He says here, you made him. We didn't create ourselves. And we didn't just become what we are by chance. God made us. And David writes that he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are wrongly taught in schools that we're just a little higher than animals. We were made a little lower than the angels and a lot higher than the animals. We didn't evolve from monkeys. We are more closely related to angels than any animal. And it says that God crowned man with glory and honor. David here is referring to that God created us in his image. Men and women have dignity. David's telling us that we are made in God's image. And so no one should be looked down upon because of their skin color, because of their ethnicity, or their gender, or their age. Because we all are created in the image of God. God crowned man with glory and honor. I'm excited that our youth group is going to be going on this trip and studying the book of Genesis because it's important for us to know what the Bible says about these things. What this psalm talks about, what the Bible says is not what you're going to find in your science books. It's not what you're going to find taught in the classrooms of most schools. God is the one who created the world. And he is the one who created us in his image. There was no big bang. And evolution is a lie. The God of the universe, whose name is majestic in all of the earth, created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made us, and he made us in his image. We were also given a specific role. David writes, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. He made us to be rulers over all living things. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God didn't just create man to live alongside the animals. He created us to have dominion over them. David goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, knowing what God had purposed in the beginning, and yet we do not see this dominion lived out, do we? David knows that Adam failed. 
He knows that Adam didn't turn the world into the garden like he should have. He knows that Adam rebelled against God. And David knows that he has fallen in Adam. And he knows that all of mankind is fallen in Adam. He knows that this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, is not going to be fulfilled by us. He knows that. And yet here he goes back and says, this was God's purpose for man. This was man's destiny to have dominion over creation, to rule over creation. That was God's purpose for you. We spend most of our days trying to have dominion over things, right? Maybe the laundry, maybe our gardens, the weeds in your lawn. In my yard, Creeping Charlie is taking over the whole thing. I'm not doing so well with dominion. In this psalm, we're reminded of Genesis 1 and 2, but we're also reminded of Genesis 3 the fall of mankind into sin. The sin of Adam and Eve introduced sin and guilt and shame and suffering and death. And so every one of us outside of Jesus Christ stands guilty before God as sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. We're still created in the image of God, but that image is marred and we don't have dominion even if we think we do. You walk up to a bird and that bird flies away. Fish cannot be easily caught. Some can catch them better than others. And animals attack us. In fact, James tells us that we cannot even tame our own tongues. So why is David reflecting on this original mandate that God gave to man, if David knows that we have failed in dominion. David goes there because he knows that God has promised to redeem a people through a second Adam, who would be a son of man, who would be made a little lower than the angels for a while, who himself would be humiliated. Think about this. You were meant to read Psalm 8 and think immediately about Jesus Christ. Not yourself, not even creation. Your mind should be directed toward the Lord Jesus, the last Adam. The one who came into this world to undo everything that Adam had done. The one who came into this world to do everything that Adam failed to do. Who by his death and resurrection brings all things in subjection to him. But how do we get there? Where do we see this? We see this in Hebrews chapter 2. So why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 941. Hebrews Chapter 2. In verse 5, the writer says this For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere, and he's going to go on to quote Psalm 8, 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author of Hebrews is writing about the world to come. The hope of believers is the world to come. David understood that. Everything is heading there. And now notice what the writer says in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't look like the church is taking dominion of everything. Right now, we don't see things under subjection. We don't see the world to come. But you know what we do see? We see Jesus. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Think about that. Jesus is the Lord. Angels serve him. He is the leader of legions of angels. And yet when he comes in the form of human flesh, when he is born, he is made lower than the angels. When he is tempted in the wilderness, an angel comes to him to minister to him. Think about that. The son of God, the eternal God, who is right now giving us life and breath and all things had to be ministered to by an angel. Jesus was made lower than the angels for a while. Continuing in verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How does Jesus bring all things under his feet? By dying. By tasting death. By conquering death. By defeating the one who had the power of death. God's own son came into this world as the bearer of God's own image. He came into this world that was under a curse and he bore that curse. He took the curse and judgment of our sin and then he rose from the dead. What does he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Dominion has been restored through the weakness of the cross. And yet through the cross, God displays his majesty most fully and brightly to the world. Right now, Jesus, the God-man, is sitting on his throne. Jesus is the righteous man of Psalm 1. He's the true king of Psalm 2, and he is the second Adam of Psalm 8. Church, look to Jesus. That's what we need to do. Jesus wore a crown of thorns so that he could give us a crown of glory and honor. And Psalm 8 is looking forward to the day when God's people will be renewed and take their rightful rule over the world. 
when we think about all of this, what should our response be? How should we respond to all that we have heard? Besides keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, besides seeing the glory of God and his creation, well, notice this psalm is bookended. Right? The, the first verse and the last verse are the same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As we think about the wonders of his creation and the wonders of what God has done in redeeming us and what he will do with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, whether we're thinking about creation or redemption, it should be moving us to praise the name of God. This is what we will be doing for eternity. In Revelation chapter 4, we have this picture of the 24 elders who are falling down before God and casting their crowns. And they say this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. We'll be praising God for his creation. And then in Revelation chapter 5, the next chapter, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth praising God for his redemption, praising the name of God because of the wonders of his creation and redemption. You may be here this morning, though, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've had those moments where you've felt pretty small when you look up at the night sky. I want you to know that while you may feel small, God is mindful of you. He cares for you. And we have seen the greatest display of his majesty and love in what Jesus has done on the cross for our sins. You are a sinner in need of salvation. But if you turn from your sins and you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. The Lord is working in your heart. You can come see me after the service or talk to any one of the members here. We'd love to pray for you, talk to you more about Jesus. But don't just go home. Don't just go to the picnic. Have a conversation with somebody. And church, whether we're thinking about God's creation or what he's done in redeeming us, and one day the world, it should be stirring up within us to praise him as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We should praise the Lord's majestic name for the wonders of his creation and redemption. Let's pray.